From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, anterior capsular opacity and lens design. These anterior lens epithelial cells, uh, they can actually induce some fibrosis right next to the IOL optic edge and can, for example, induce a decentration of the entire optic or also tilting of the optic. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Oliver Findel declares consulting fees from Chroma Pharma. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead, try it out. It's cool. The IOL looks great. The posterior capsule is clear, but there's an annoying white opacity surrounding the IOL anteriorly. This is an anterior capsular opacity. At best, it interferes with the view of the peripheral retina on dilated fundoscopy. At worst, contraction of the anterior capsular leaf can result in IOL tilting or frank decentration. Much has been published about the influence of IOL material and design on the development of posterior capsular opacity. Today, Oliver Findel speaks to us about factors influencing the development of anterior capsular opacity. Oliver, what is the pathophysiology of anterior capsular opacities, and how does it differ from the pathophysiology of posterior capsular opacities? So anterior capsular opacification, or in general fibrotic um, capsular opacification, is the result of the transdifferentiation of the so-called anterior lens epithelial cells. Um, so in order to understand that, you um, need to go back a step to the anatomy of the lens um, our current thinking is there are two different lens epithelial cell subpopulations. Um, one is um, just beneath the anterior capsule on the anterior aspect of the lens, but on the posterior surface of the capsule, obviously, being um, in charge of nutrition, essentially, of the lens during lifetime. And the other subpopulation are the so-called equatorial lens epithelial cells, which are in the equator region, And they are responsible for essentially building up lens fibers. So our lenses, as we sit, um, our crystalline lenses grow with lifetime. They become larger um, and also thicker. Um, So they are are therefore regenerating lens epithelial, um, lens material essentially. Um, And so these two different types of cells, they do react um, quite differently after surgery when we implant an IOL. After cataract surgery, um, the, the anterior lens epithelial cells, they um, transdifferentiate into what we call myofibroblasts and then to fibroblasts. 
and they lay down collagen and so they form a fibrotic reaction which we can see as, as whitening of the capsule um, or pacification and whitening of the capsule or also as shrinkage um, which can induce lens decentration which can induce lens tilt but um, can also uh, induce wrinkling of the capsule like small wrinkles and then the equatorial lens epithelial cells which we said are the regeneratory type they um, usually proliferate they undergo mitosis and they can uh, then um, essentially come from the equator can move centrally um, and also move behind the IOL optic and can produce what we call regeneratory um, essentially PCO, posterior capsule pacification. Uh, for example, the Elschnick pearls um, or just other regeneratory material behind the IOL. ACO, anterior capsule pacification, so the pacification of the anterior capsule is usually only fibrotic. And PCO, posterior capsule pacification, so what happens in the posterior capsule behind the IOL optic is usually regeneratory type but can also be fibrotic. So it can be a mixture of both. It can be uh, but it's usually regeneratory, so it's usually what we call, you know, pearl formation or just regeneratory after cataract. So, so what what is interesting or important to keep in mind is that there are two different cell types, which induce fibrotic and the other regeneratory after cataract, and the uh, uh, fibrotic after cataract can be present, especially on the anterior capsule, but also sometimes on the posterior capsule, and the regeneratory after cataract is only present on the posterior capsule if it, if it um, does appear. What are the complications that are caused by anterior capsular opacity? Well, ACO, what, well, what, it can do several things. Um, first of all, um, it will produce some whitening of the capsule, um, especially in the region where the capsule is in contact with the IOL surface. So where the anterior capsule has contact to the IOL surface, so that means the rexus border to the edge of the IOL optic, you, will, you can have a pacification or whitening of the capsule. And this will obviously um, be a problem because you will have, um, if, especially if the rexus opening is rather small, you will have um, a, a worse, um, for example, um, visualization of the peripheral retina. So if you're a retinal surgeon or if you're you know, also uh, somebody who wants to examine the peripheral retina in a myopic subject, for example, looking for defects, you know, looking for holes or tears, you will have a much harder time if you have a pacified, uh, a pacified anterior capsule. What can also happen is if you have an a decentered capsular axis to start with, so maybe part of the capsular axis actually not being on top of the IOL but actually being off the IOL because it's decentered and too large and eccentric, then what can happen is that these anterior um, lens epithelial cells which undergo this transdifferentiation and then you know fibroblastic um, reaction and, and, and can cause fibrosis, uh, they can actually induce some fibrosis right next to the IOL optic edge and can, for example, induce a decentration of the entire optic or also a tilting of the optic. We call this um, a buttonholing, or in this case it would be a, what I just described as a partial buttonholing um, um, of, the, um, of the capsule with the optic of the IOL. And we have seen these kind of complications essentially, especially in the, in the 80s and 90s, um, where the capsular axes used to be quite large and we used to have IOLs uh, of, of, of a suboptimal, um, you know, uh, not only material but also um, design of concerning haptics 
and concerning optic um, design, so that we used to see these decentrations and tilts quite often. Uh, fortunately, nowadays, with the more modern um, technology, first of all, surgical you know, technique, but also an awareness that you should, you should try to have an overlap of the rexes with the IOL optic, and also with the more modern IOL technologies, um, these decentrations and tilts have become much, much less um, you know, prevalent. What are the risk factors for anterior capsular opacity? Well, first of all, I mean, ACO, essentially everybody gets ACO. But what we're talking about is what, what are the risk factors for, for, for a strong ACO reaction? Right, for these complications of anterior capsular opacity. Right. For intense, so, so intense ACO, you know, with strong whitening, um, that would be one, of, one thing. Then the one thing we talked about just now is decentration and tilt as a reaction of, you know, of, of the fibrotic reaction. Or also another a third sort of problem you may be seeing is just a small, you know, a contraction of the rexus opening, which will, uh, in some extreme cases, will give you a very small rexus opening or even a rexus phimosis, as we call it, um, which may actually even um, uh, cause visual problems for the patient. Um, where do we see this? What are the, the, the um, risk factors? Well, the risk factor number one is probably pseudoexfoliation syndrome. Uh, because uh, we see a stronger fibrotic reaction on the anterior capsule with the IOL optic. And on the other hand, we also have loose, uh, loosened uh, zonial fibers. Um, so uh, there is less um, retraction, uh, counter-retraction from the peripheral um, you know, uh, capsule. Um, so we often have strong rexus contractions in these cases with pseudoexfoliation. So that would be one. The other page, the other a uh, case where we have problems with ACO is in uveitic patients whom who we have to do cataract surgery and they also tend to have a stronger uh, fibrotic reaction. Isn't the pathogenic process that's involved in anterior capsular opacity also important for the development of a barrier which prevents migration of cells posterior to the intraocular lens? Isn't the production of this anterior capsular barrier important in the limitation of the production of a posterior capsular opacity. Uh, you, you, you describe this in the paper as a shrink wrap effect and, and that it's beneficial. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, this, so there's always an, the, you know, another side to, to it. You're absolutely right. ACO, um, you need to have or you should have some ACO. Um, it's not good um, if you have no ACO at all um, or you know, very little. Um, the reason being the following. Or our current understanding is that um, during the first um, essentially seven to nine days after surgery, and we've been sh able to show that in another study using OCT, um, which we usually use for retinal diagnosis, using OCT, optical coherence tomography, to actually look at the way the capsule bag collapses after we've implanted the uh, IOL into the bag. And so we look at that during the first few days after surgery, you know. And, and we see that the anterior capsule comes down onto the optic, onto the anterior optic surface um, rather rapidly within this first week or nine days. And then, what, so what, and, and in that case, the anterior and posterior capsule, like a, a zipper, um, um, will, will close from the periphery and, you know, close up onto the, up to the optic, um, op optic rim. And then what happens is you have the fibrotic reaction on the anterior aspect of the IOL in contact with the, with the, um, with the capsule. Um, and we, um, we then usually have a bending of the posterior capsule at the posterior optic edge. So what happens is you now have a sealed 
anterior and posterior capsule in the peripheral and mid-peripheral, you know, a capsular bag, so they're sealed together. And at the optic, the posterior capsule is usually then, uh, you know, is bent, is, it has to bend backwards and has to really wrap around the posterior um, um, you know, edge of, of, of the IOL. And we know that this, this um, edge effect and this wrapping of the posterior capsule around the edge is probably one of the best, um, you know, in, in, in um, essentially um, uh, factors of, of preventing PCO regeneratory PCO, which usually comes later after one or two years. And now if you have a nice sealing effect, so if you have a nice fibrosis, which will really glue and give you a tight glue um, and a permanent seal, then obviously um, your chances of this seal being reopened later when the regeneratory cells come later and migrate and try to then invade behind the IOL, and they usually come after six months or even later. In children, this might be earlier in the congenital, you know, uh, a cataract population, but in the adults, this usually happens much later. Um, so if we have a very permanent, nice uh, fibrotic seal, um, then um, then we believe that uh, this will will give you quite a good PCO inhibiting effect. Have there been studies prior to this one that suggested that the lens material or design has an influence in the development of anterior capsular opacity? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there have been you know several studies and and also. Um, um, you know, essentially, uh, especially studies from the 90s, uh, which showed that especially silicone material um, produces uh, more ACO than, for example, hydrophobic or hydrophilic acrylate lenses. Um, however, there is something very important to keep in mind. These were usually older silicones, so they um, also had a lower refractive index and quite a different chemical composition to the silicones we use nowadays. Nowadays we use silicones which we call third generation silicones. So these uh, observations of strong ACO with silicone material actually came from the 90s where we still were using you know, even first or second generation silicone materials which were quite different not only in the chemical composition but also the surface characteristics. So I think we really have to rethink um, these old observations because now we have a different, um, a different material we're, we're talking about. And it's not only the material of the optic itself, but also the haptics have changed quite a lot. So, for example, these very strong fibrotic reactions and also fibrotic reactions on the posterior capsule, so not only ACO, but also fibrotic PCO, where, for example, you know, we, we saw those a lot with the old silicone plate haptic lenses. However, again, this was a different silicone material than we use nowadays and which we have in our lenses nowadays. And also the haptic design was quite different. So now if we talk about open-loop, three-piece silicone, modern silicone lenses, as we have shown in this study, there is not more ACO than compared to hydrophobic acrylate. Can I have you describe the design of the study? Well, the study was um, uh, a randomized control trial. Um, we... Um, and it was also patient and examiner masked. Now, obviously, the, the surgeon was only masked until um, having to implant the IOL and was then unmasked. Uh, but he was masked uh, until the end of irrigation aspiration, which is, I think, an important point that when you start surgery, you don't really know um, which lens is going to be in this patient because it is in a sealed envelope and is opened by somebody else in the operating room um, who is an operating assistant. And what we also use in this, and I think that is also very important to say, because there are strong differences between patients concerning 
PCO, an ACO, um, you know, sort of potential. So we see some patients, no matter which kind of IOL you use or which kind of surgical lens, uh, surgical um, technique you use, they will have low PCO and ACO rates in both eyes. And there are some patients who will have strong ACO and PCO potential, you know, even though you, um, you have done the same surgery. So what we have used for this study, and which we use actually for most of our PCO studies in general also, is to use an intra-individual comparison design. So that, you know, knowing that the, the eyes of one patient are twins, essentially twin, is a twin organ, um, and being very similar, um, we say uh, we will do surgery on the first eye and we will randomize the patient to the one IOL or to the other IOL, depending on randomization, and then the other contralateral eye of the same patient surgery is usually done one or four with one to four weeks later uh, gets the other um, you know control or or veronai uh, uh, IOL or whatever so so we have this inter individual comparison which gives us a lot of um, uh, a lot more statistical power uh, concerning our outcomes what were the lenses that you used in this study and how did you evaluate anterior capsular opacity postoperatively okay well what, what we did is um, essentially this um, this study consists of two groups um, the first group um, were 50, I think, two or 53 um, patients. Um, so that was uh, 104 eyes of those uh, 52 patients. Um, and, and what we did um, is we implanted a three-piece silicone IOL in one eye and a three-piece hydrophobic acrylic IOL in the other eye. So these, that, those were the two um, IOLs we compared. And then we had a second group which were another 52 or 53 patients, I always forget which is which, um, um, and where we then uh, compared a, the, hi, uh, the same hydrophobic acrylic three-piece lens, which we had in the group one, and now compared it to the single-piece um, uh, acrylic, hydrophobic acrylic lens of the same company. So the idea was here we wanted to examine two different things. We wanted to examine on the one side silicone versus hydrophobic acrylate with very similar um, haptic designs. And then in the group two, we compared the same optic material, the same hydrophobic acrylic, acrylic material, but now with totally different haptic designs. One time a three-piece angulated haptic design, and then compared that there to the single-piece non-angulated haptic design. So we wanted to see the influence of material on the one hand and see the influence of haptic design and angulation on the other hand. Just to be clear, the silicone lens that you used in the study was the 911A AMO lens, is that right? It's the yeah, it's called the 911A, it's also called the C-on edge lens. Uh, it's, it's, it is a silicone lens um, with PVDF um, haptics. Um, it has an overall size of 12 millimeters. The optic is a 6 millimeter biconvex optic. And um, this is also the, the same, exactly the same lens as you also know maybe from the Technus. The Technus is the same lens just with an aspheric um, um, anterior surface. So, um, so this is the, 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 the three-piece silicone lens which was used and it's by AMO. And the acrylic lenses that used in this study, the three-piece lens was the MA60BM Acrosoft lens and the one-piece lens was the SA60AT. Correct. So, so we had 
the same, the, the three-piece uh, acrylic, hydrophobic acrylic lens in groups one and group two, and these two different comparisons were the same. They were the MA60s, um, and that is um, uh, a 13-millimeter overall size um, lens um, with the PMA haptics and has um, hydrophobic, the Acrosoft material um, as the optic material, um, and, and the single piece, and is, and is 10 degrees angulated. Um, and the single-piece Acrosoft lens, um, also the 6-millimeter um, variant, um, is non-angulated and has the uh, single-piece, you know, these rather uh, more clumsy-looking, thicker um, Acrosoft material haptics. Can you walk me through cataract surgery as performed for this study? Right. Um, surgery um, was done in local anesthesia. Um, at the time, we still used um, peribulbar anesthesia. We did um, a posterior limbal incision from the temporal aspect um, in a single plane manner. Um, uh, you, you know, we used um, uh, uh, viscoelastic, usually methyl cellulose, for the um, filling of the anterior chamber. We did a capsular axis with a bent needle. Hydrodissection was followed by um, uh, bimanual phaco um, technique. We're using a coaxial phaco, but just using a second instrument for cracking. Um, and then um, we um, did an irrigation aspiration uh, using a coaxial IA tip. Um, we uh, did not polish the anterior capsule. Um, and then uh, we implanted the IOLs using injective systems um, through the incisions. And at the end, we um, always aspirated the viscoelastic also from behind the, caps uh, behind the IOL from the capsule bag and the anterior chamber. The patients uh, received the normal anti-phlogistic therapy, um, anti-inflammatory therapy in, in the first four weeks after surgery. And then we did our follow-up follow examinations at one week and at one year concerning ACO. How did you measure ACO postoperatively? Right. Well, what we did is um, we showed that in a former study where we um, evaluated this technique we're using, um, obviously, the technique which was always used before was just to, you know, grade ACO at the slip lamp. Um, but we wanted to go um, uh, a little beyond that because we thought that was too, um, you know, too coarse and not, not exact enough. So what we did in these patients is we have a, a standard setting of um, slip lamp photographs, um, which we take on a digital slip lamp photography unit. Um, and we take um, photographs of the temporal and the nasal half of each eye separately, and we then import these images into um, a, um, a photographic analysis system, and we then um, essentially analyze the whiteness of the anterior capsule in contact with the eyewall optic, so where we have the whitening, um, and compare the... Um, whiteness there with that in the in the central dark region in these slip lamp photographs. And that gives us essentially a percentage of whitening. And that is a good surrogate parameter for anterior capsule pacification. And we were able to show in a previous um, study, which was also published, that the reproducibility, the short-term and also longer-term reproducibility of this um, technique of photography and then analysis um, is quite high. So you're within a f just a few percent um, of, of, of the values um, you find. You were just measuring the size of the ACO or, or its density too? So this is the intensity of the ACO. And what we also measured then is from retroillumination photographs, we measured the actual rexus opening. 
So we did this after we did these photographs after one week and after one year, and so we measured the rexus opening from these retroillumination photographs, which will give you a very nice image of the rexus and focus on the rexus. You can then outline the rexus border um, using um, an automated software, which we had, uh, which was developed for us by um, by a, a computer um, uh, institute in, in in Austria. And essentially, out it, it automatically outlines the rexus border. You can then correct uh, some pixels if they're off, and then you get the rexus size in square millimeters. And you can do that after one week, and then after one year, as we did, and then you can see the the contraction or the the the, the, the increase or decrease in size of the rexus opening. So we have two we have two different parameters. One is intensity of ACO from slit lamp photographs taken in a standardized fashion. And the other is Rex's opening size as assessed from retroillumination photographs. Can you tell me what your findings were, uh, how these different lenses did? Well, essentially, the findings are that there is no difference. That we found no differences concerning the intensity of anterior capsule pacification between the silicone or the hydrophobic acrylate or between the single-piece or three-piece hydrophobic acrylate designs. And concerning the opening of the capsular rexus, so the rexus size, if you want to, we also found no significant differences between these different IOL materials. Now, we did find some contraction of the rexus from one week to one year in the, the two different three-piece models, the silicone and the, acry the acrylic, but this is only a minute difference, very small difference, in around 2 to 3% contraction. So very little, but there was no difference between silicone or acrylic. They were the same. They both showed the same extent of, of, of very, very small contraction. How did these findings compare with those of other researchers? Well, essentially, um, I think this is the first study to um, really clearly show that a modern silicone lens and a modern hydrophobic acrylic lens, um, at least the two models we compared, do not differ concerning ACO intensity. Um, and that, um, the, the only studies which have looked at that in, in detail and in a systematic fashion are quite old studies from you know, the early 90s. And as I told you, at that time, uh, optic material on the one hand, especially the silicone material, and especially also optic, um, the whole um, haptic design was quite different. Um, so. So I think um, this study essentially um, sort of uh, clears up this whole situation um, of, of, of what people think about silicone still inducing very much fibrosis. Now, mind you, these are normal eyes. So these patients only had cataract. They did not have pseudoexfoliation syndrome uh, or any other higher risk factor like ubiitis. So the, the results may be different in you know, risk eyes. However, again, you know, more than 95% of our patients do not have these risk factors. So we here looked at the normal age-related cataract um, you know, population. In terms of the pathologic complications associated with ACO, how important is the size of the capsular rexus with respect to the diameter of the optic? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think the point is, as far as we, we know now, if you want to you want to, on the one hand, as we spoke before, we want to have an overlap of the rexus with the IOL optic because we know that that will give you a good gluing effect and a good sealing effect and will give you less 
regeneratory PCO later. So we definitely want to have an overlap 360 degrees around the entire rim um, of the optic. On the other hand, we don't want this overlap to be too strong, meaning the rex is opening to be too small, because then if you have this situation, you will have, for example, as we spoke before, you will have a worse, uh, you will have a more difficult situation concerning retinal examination. You may also, especially now with the more modern aspheric IOLs, we know that an aspheric IOL to really be of, of, of um, you know, of a good effect, to have an effect for the patient, um, to be able to have a better contrast um, acuity and contrast um, sensitivity um, under, under mesopic conditions, so under low light conditions with a, with a wide pupil, if you have a small rexus, he will not profit from an aspheric IOL, or he will have much less profit. So here you also want to have a, a rather large rexus opening in order for these new modern lenses to be able to work. So all the, you know, the, the prolate optic and aspheric IOLs, which are supposed to give you a better, uh, especially contrast uh, sensitivity, contrast vision, um, 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 especially under low light conditions. And then also, you know, concerning things like, as we spoke, um, rexus contraction, severe rexus contraction, the risk of that, all these problems with decentration and tilt. Obviously, um, for these problems, uh, you also want the rexus to be large enough not to have strong rexus contraction, but you don't want it to be too large because that will give you um, the, 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 the problems and the risks of tilt or decentration. So I think it is really crucial nowadays um, that we have this awareness and we have this knowledge that we really aim for uh, the optimal size of a rexus to, for the patient to have you know, all the upsides and none of the downsides. We recognize the importance that the design of the optic edge has. What role does the design of the haptic play? Well, that's a very good question because there are so many haptics out there. Um, you know, there's angulated haptics, non-angulated haptics. There's single-piece, you know, sort of more clumsy, thick haptics, and there's most, you know, most of the three-piece lenses have more thin haptics. Um, we have different overall haptic sizes, so from 12 to 13 millimeters and even above with some models. Uh, we have the so-called C-loop haptics, which try to give you a nice uh, sort of curve at the equator of the lens, trying to, to have a longer and a, you know, a zone of contact with the equator of the lens capsule. And then we have more sort of J-loop haptics, which will only have a small piece of contact. And all these things may also then give you, for example, capsule folds of the posterior capsule within the first, you know, after surgery, especially if the, the, the capsules are oversized. So I think there's a lot of issues with haptic um, um, uh, configuration, um, which, which may be um, quite important, um, especially also concerning the axial positioning of the optic. So where will this uh, optic and this IOL position in an anterior forward aspect, which is important for refractive outcome and for biometry. But this is a whole big other issue, um, and there's, there's a lot of factors which, which are involved um, and which we believe may be quite important um, concerning the predictability of where this IOL optic will, be, you know, will position itself in an eye. But concerning PCO, we still know quite little about the influence of, of, the, um, of the haptic. So, for example, is an angulation necessary or not? 
concerning PCO or also ACO is quite um, is still quite um, unknown. Uh, we we um, there was there was a big fear, for example, that the single piece Acrosoft lens having these um, more bulky, larger, thicker haptics that because the capsule, anterior and posterior capsule cannot fuse right next to the haptics because they're quite clumsy, that this may actually induce more ACO, uh, PCO, I'm sorry, more PCO um, in the long run. And we, um, we did a, a, a study where we compared the single and the three-piece Acrosoft lens concerning PCO, but we saw no difference at two years. Um, and we will need to see whether there will be a difference longer out, you know, longer after surgery. Uh, but there are some some aspects of of haptic um, uh, geometry and haptic um, design which which may be of importance. But I think we still we still are quite unaware of um, you know of of all these different factors at the moment. Have the findings of this study that silicone lenses really don't generate any more in the way of ACO than acrylic lenses do? Has has this finding changed the way that you practice? Are are you more apt to put in silicone lenses now? Yes. Um, to be honest, um, uh, I, um, I mean, there are, you know, there, there are, there are few, several aspects um, um, concerning um, IOL optic material, um, which may be of importance. Um, and I think that most aspects um, concerning silicone, which is also hydrophobic, and concerning concerning the hydrophobic acrylic, acrylic lenses, is that concerning ACO and PCO, the two if they have a similar design concerning edge and concerning haptics and concerning angulation, all these aspects, uh, the material effect itself is probably a very small, no effect at all, as we have shown. Um, I would not say the same for hydrophilic acrylic lenses because I think my feeling is that they have more PCO even if they have sharp edges and similar haptics. But uh, concerning hydrophobic materials, hydrophobic, acrylic, and uh, silicone, um, I think that um, uh, I, I, um, I don't have any hesitation to, to intermix between, and, you know, to change between these two materials. And the only contraindication, but under, you know, under quotation marks, may be patients where you think they may be uh, needing silicone oil at some point in time because of complicated retinal detachment. Um, however, um, you know, how often does this really happen? Number one, and number two, we also know that if we use silicone oil, for example, in the patient also with an you know hydrophobic acrylic lens, they can also have a lot of problems in the interface between the silicone oil and, and the lens if the capsule is not there anymore because, for example, a capsulotomy was done. So I think you know putting a silicone oil into a, a pseudophagic patient where the posterior capsule is not intact anymore is always a problem. And not only with the silicone IOLs, but just as well with, you know, many of the other materials. And again, you know, how often do we really use silicone oil um, in, in these patients? I mean, that is quite seldom. Oliver, do you have any recommendations for clinicians? Um, I, I think, I mean, essentially, um, again, I, I, I don't think that we should recommend, you know, using silicone or using hydrophobic acrylic lenses, I think these, both these materials are you know, very modern and, um, and, and very legitimate uh, materials. Um, we've seen several problems with the hydrophobic acrylic lenses, for example, concerning glistenings, you know, inclusions, um, water inclusions in, in, in the eye wall optics, which we have not seen with silicone. Uh, we have a much longer experience, actually, with silicone material in eyes uh, concerning the number of years um, than with hydrophobic acrylics. Um, 
So I think, you know, I think what we need to do is we need to um, uh, try to get rid of the myths and legends um, which which is sort of ghosting around and which will still you know still uh, appear here and there, and really have to look at at what these different modern lenses do. And I think we you know we're pretty well off with both of these materials. Oliver Findel, thank you very much. Pleasure. Truth. Truth. Oliver Findel is an associate professor in the Department of Ophthalmology at the Medical University of Vienna in Vienna, Austria. His paper, Effect of Optic Material and Haptic Design on Anterior Capsular Opacification and Capsular Rexus Contraction, appears in the March 2006 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Findel or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website, as seen from here.com. As seen from here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.